So I was just telling Dylan about my next door exploits. <laughs> or are we starting with Hello. this? Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Sapere A Day. I'm your host, Aaron Johnson. And I'm Dylan. Um, how, how, how are you holding up under quarantine? I'm unraveling, personally. Yeah, it seems like every week just... It's not like... I'm not in a terrible spot so don't don't think that but like yeah my mental state is not not doing great not doing great all the time so right now i'm doing all right so you know it's a day-by-day thing so oh yeah i definitely there are some days better than others but it's um it's it's difficult i'm i'm unraveling so that's that's how i'm doing but we're getting there need some sunshine to stay sane yes today it was cloudy all day we're recording this on Thursday, April second, and yeah, um, it's uh, cloudy and a little on the chilly side here in Oklahoma City. So, yay, yay for that, yay for seasonal depression. All right, wow, we're gonna <laughs> start this week, uh, kind of picking up on where we were last week, talking about the current pandemic. I received an email on Saturday, March 28th, and you'll never guess who it's from. Who? Who is Oh, no, I just remembered we forgot to do Spoon Man. Shoot, sorry, who's it from? I never it filled out the from, Spoon Man form. All right, well, we'll, we'll circle back to that. <laughs> okay. For those of you, okay, well, let, let's add some context there. We are trying to get Spoon Man by Soundgarden, right? Soundgarden to I can't remember. We're trying to get Spoon Man by Soundgarden as our theme song. We have we are we are in communication with the licensing company. Um we explained to them that we have an extremely limited budget. Uh so you know we we're in the process. Uh, if anyone doesn't recognize, if if you played ATV Off Road Fury in two thousand one, <laughs> you should know this song. If you have a PlayStation two, <laughs> it's a great song. Anyway, and I didn't know on. I didn't know about I didn't know about that song until you told me about it. But I'm just I just love that it's called Spoon Man, and I and I think we need to get it. At all costs, we need to save it's up for really, it. It's really an exceptional song. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, I, I rudely uh, interrupted Dylan, so you go on with uh, yeah with your email. You got an email today. Interrupt me again, bitch. I got an email. I got an email from Oscar Munoz personally to me. If you don't know who that is, he's the CEO. Of United Airlines. Naturally, I'm lying. I did get an email from him, but it's you know, you know, they're just traditional email marketing. Um, and he he said he was talking about the challenging times that him and United Airlines are facing right now. And he you know gave a little shout out to the employees 
Uh, he talked about the importance that we all stay connected and the role United Airlines has in that. And, and, and then this right here is the key. That is why it is so important our government acted on a comprehensive relief act to ensure our airline and our industry are ready and able to serve you again when this crisis abates. As we talked about last week, tucked away in that two more than $2 trillion stimulus bill was, was tens of billions of dollars going to airline industries including United Airlines. Now I just I just want to I want to start off this week ta- taking a little look. Taking just a little look see at the airline industry. So, so we're we're going to we're going to start this little journey in in the year 1971. In 1971, Southwest Airlines won its case as it was suing the Civil Aeronautics Board to finally launch, to finally put their first airplane in the air that was flying out of Texas Love Field. Now, of course, why did they have to sue for that? Why did they have to go? Why did it go all the way up to the Supreme Court? And why did that case and certain other uh, things going on at the time, why did that launch what became the largest deregulation of the airline industry in the history of its existence, it's because anytime an airplane was going to fly outside of a state, it needed to first receive federal permission from the Civil Aeronautic Board to even exist as a company and then to fly that particular route if uh, another existing airline was already on that route. So, and yes, that, that you heard that right. If one airline was on that route, another airline had to get permission to fly that route. And so this led up to the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978, uh, ran on that platform of deregulation. Carter, a Democrat, ran on that platform of deregulation of the airline industry in his 1976 campaign. And that is, that is what is so interesting. So the, we now have more people who have flown on an airplane than ever before. Um, we have more routes than we do people almost. There, there, There's almost nowhere in the world you can't go on an airplane, and almost every single, at least in America, almost every single person has been on a plane at least once. That, of course, has expanded exponentially since the airline industry was uh, unregulated. It was deregulated. And that is what is interesting about it. Now, we love to, we, everyone, including me, I love to shit on airlines. Generally, people don't like flying. It's, you know, pretty cramped. The fees are ridiculous. I mean, United Airlines, who makes billions of dollars a year just on baggage fees alone, apparently didn't have a safety net to prepare itself for an economic, an economic downturn. But here's the thing. It didn't need to. Because it knew that it was if it ever needed to, it was going to get bailed out. It was going to get money. It wasn't allowed to go under. And that is because there's only four major airlines, three of them being legacy airlines, Delta, American, and United. And then, of course, Southwest is the other biggest airline. It's a little bit of an outlier. But even that is becoming a lot more commercially 
any politically, I guess, mainstream. So these airlines receive billions of dollars in federal subsidies. And they're also the only airlines that are allowed to fly, allowed to fly between states. And of course, the the air the airports are all government run. They're all they're all government run. So to even have access to these public airports to be able to land out is damn near impossible. So people say, oh, it's corporate consolidation is the problem within the airline industry. No. That that serves, that has some problems, but the real problem is that there's virtually no competition in the airline industry anymore. To the point where the CEO is begging for the CEO of a legacy airline is going to be begging for money. And they get it and they send out an email saying, Oh, it was so important that the government give us give us money. I mean that, that that's kind of ballsy. Yeah, I <laughs> Definitely, definitely ballsy. Like, oh, we couldn't have seen this coming. There's no way we could have been prepared for this. I mean, come on. It's so it sounds like I mean, my understanding is basically the 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 government has had control over airlines since the seventies, is what you're saying. Like basically you can't you so, can't yes, yes, fly no. anywhere so, without I mean, government it, it, approval. There was, in 1978, it heavily deregulated the industry. So it was way okay. worse before that. Right. But as we continue to move forward, it's getting back to the point where there's enough regulation and there's enough control, not even on airlines themselves, but on where they land, the airports, that it's almost impossible to start a new airline or for an airline to exist um, at an at an airport. For, for a new airline to exist. Okay. I, I mean, this is just kind of ridiculous. You know, my favorite part about going to the airport is uh, getting felt up by the TSA agents. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, it's I tweeted today. I tweeted today on our account. Uh, uh, John Stossel, he was um, looking at the TSA uh, it's it's really fantastic to see how much the TSA costs and how little they actually do. What I mean, they they are more likely to be arrested for stealing something than they are to catch and stop and or stop a potential terrorist attack. You remember when they were? Uh, I saw a story last story I saw about the TSA that blew up was like people were stealing iPads or something like that. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, that's all I seem to hear. I never hear like, oh, the TSA stopped a a potential terrorist. You know, I don't hear that in the news at all. No. And maybe, maybe, maybe it happens. I don't know. Every single study that they've run of, of what either the, the stats they keep or other, um, Entities that have that have run tests or run studies with the TSA, they don't catch anything. Well, I know there's ways to beat the machines. Like, I, I haven't. I mean, I've. <laughs> I won't speak to speak to personal experience, but uh, I know you can beat the machines. So, and you can take that as a fact. <laughs> so that's um yeah that's kind of my bitch sesh about the uh, the airline industry, but. The, the bigger part of that is public funding versus federal funding, whether it's, 
you know, public subsidies uh, for certain industries or, for example, infrastructure spending. Um, I think the easiest the easiest example to look at to probe as to as whether or not public funding is a good idea for projects that otherwise should be private. I mean, first off, just right off the bat, look at the New York City subway. I mean, hilarious. Billions of dollars in debt and it can't even run and the whole thing's falling apart. Um, but but look, at uh, we, can, we can go way back. I mean, this isn't a, a new thing. We can go back to the start of the transcontinental railroad in this country because you, you hear a lot of uh, Biden and Obama preached this in 2012 about the economic boom we need will come from a high speed rail system that the federal government must pay for. You heard him talk about it all the time in that election. And, and, you know, starting in the, the mid 1800s, early 1800s, they started to expand the transcontinental railroad and to push further out West. This is oddly enough. This is this is depicted no better than in the AMC show Hell on Wheels. It's uh, it's no longer on air, but you know, years ago when it was on air, the very first episode, the pilot episode, which everyone should go watch, there's this you know real dick uh, railroad baron who they're looking at the plans. They're you know they're they're I think if I remember correctly, it's Nebraska. They're looking at this straight um rail line that's just going to go across nebraska it's mostly flat and grassland they're like it's you know it's flat we can just go straight across it and the rail the the railroad baron is like well i wasn't really thinking about that i was thinking about this and he like makes like a squiggly line across the state and the the guy who was like the lead engineer or something he's like why would we do that it's flat land and the guy's like, because the federal government is paying me $16,000 a mile, so why would we not make as much, take as long as possible to make it happen? So they, they, they went out of their way to make it more inefficient, to make the, uh, to make the commutes take longer, and they did the work so shoddily because that company was getting paid either way. They weren't being paid on how well it did on the project. It was They were being paid per mile, regardless of how many miles it was. Meanwhile, privately funded rail lines of that time, some of them are still in use to this very day because they were, they were better built, better maintained, and they were the shortest, most efficient routes possible. Because it wasn't an it wasn't an endless supply of, of money and, and and what's funny in that in that episode in the scene the guy refers to his revenue stream his funding stream as if I remember correctly the never ending money gushing teat of the federal government I believe is the, the, the phrase, he, phrase he uses now that's different in the private sector because it's not never ending it's not gushing you're doing the job and if you're not your funding is going to go away you're not going to be able to finish your project your your business isn't going to get off the ground and and that that is the big difference between when something is publicly funded and privately funded and then the last thing i'll say before i continue on this to to bring up an example a little bit more close to home the lovely Wealth transfer that is the MAPS program here in Oklahoma City. 
For those of you who don't know, and if you're not in Oklahoma, you or even in Oklahoma City, you wouldn't know. Um, Maps is a tax initiative. A a uh, I guess what do they call it? A penny tax initiative or some bullshit? Yeah, um, you just have to pay a penny. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Why wouldn't you vote for it? Yeah, exactly. Um, it is it is a a sales tax that uh, exists to. It's all the money raised from this tax, this one percent tax, the sales tax, is then reinvested, quote unquote, back into the city, usually for beautification projects, for certain business districts, so on and so forth. And and I think you know I you know as a libertarian, I obviously I hate it, but um, you know, sure, plenty of good has come from this. Oklahoma City has been revitalized, at least in part, to this could. I think it could have happened in the private sector as well, but you know, sure. I'm not going to say that nothing good has come from this, but the project that was finished, I want to say it was finished in 2015, 2016 um, out of the maps three, which by the way is we're on maps four now maps is a temporary tax. I guess I want to add that it's a temporary sales tax increase, but they keep renewing it. They've renewed it for like the last 20 years. So it's temporary, but it's temporary as a government program. Yes. Yes. Milton, Milton Friedman. Um, Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's hilarious. (laughs) Thank you for completing Uh, my quote. I had no idea who said that. No, that's right. That's right. There is nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. It was Milton Friedman. Uh, and, and MAPS is the perfect example of that. It was always supposed to be temporary. So when it expires, they just renew it, and they put a different number at the end. MAPS, MAPS 2, MAPS 3, MAPS 4. So this one was MAPS 3 several years ago. We have a uh, – there's a, there's, a, there's a new business um, in the, on the south side or like the south central side along the river. It's the Oklahoma City Boathouse Foundation, the foundation that also runs the uh, whitewater – yeah, whitewater rafting facility down there. It is a private foundation. It is nonprofit, but it's a private foundation. It's now operating at a loss for 2019 of $605,000. In how much? It's uh, $605,000. $605,000. So and is this River Sport Co-KC late- that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, the whole the whole uh, the whole boathouse district, I think. Okay. So it's 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 uh, in late last year, um, the Oklahoma City Council had to vote as to whether or not to provide an additional one point five million dollars for the foundation over the next nine months, which is ongoing as of as of this recording. So this is a private business that it's not nonprofit, sure, but it's a private business that is now essentially a cash hole. It is now relying on the city council to stay afloat because it's and, and why not? It doesn't it because doesn't they need to make money. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't need to make money so long as this current city council is just going to give in and keep dropping money into it. Well, and are, like, so it had they kind no of have reason a, from the get go to work. Well, they have a monopoly over the area, right? Like no one could just come in. I mean, I guess if the government didn't do anything, but they're relying on that because it's been done in the past. Yeah. The whole, the whole area is like a, 
it's it's owned by you know the boathouse foundation and a lot of its money in the past has come from like corporate sponsorships hence why you know there was like the the devon boathouse from devon energy and there was continental and and all this stuff um but (laughs) the uh, corporate donations had declined from 5.2 million in 2016 to just one in 2018. So, yeah. So it was relying <laughs> on donations and revenues from like River Sport, and it wasn't and it wasn't bringing in the money it needed. And now it's just going to ask the council for money, and the council is going to give it money. <laughs> That's okay. I'm not surprised. Have you been there before? I haven't personally. I've been down there. I haven't used the facility. Yeah, wow, that's they have a river regatta every year, and it's kind—it's of, a cool event. But it's—it's it's, I guess it's just one of those things. There's no reason that couldn't exist privately as a privately funded facility, and if it were privately funded, if it were, if if it were either a total nonprofit or privately held for profit, they would make it work because they'd have to. But now it's just going to keep sucking up money taxpayer money from the city yeah well and and they're probably at the point where it's you know a too big to fail type situation so they're like well who else is gonna come in here right i mean we have to they don't want to they don't want to go like vacant or barren especially since it was a maps program maps has built this city and with people like mick Cornette and david holt in charge they're more interested in stroking their ego than they are in doing anything else so they no matter what they can't allow a maps project to go under because then it would question it would bring it would call to doubt maps funding entirely which they cannot allow right and it's it's they're operating at a loss that's small enough to where it can kind of go under the radar yeah Uh, obviously we're we're covering Um, it so that's good I like that you know all these. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's funny because even like the, you know, they're operating on that loss and they're looking for, like I said, 1.5 million, but it's over nine months. So it's enough where each month it doesn't seem so bad because it's it's just like it's funding any other park. And by the way, for those people that are like, oh, MAP sounds like a great program. There are a number of other cities that are looking at the way Oklahoma City is doing it and implementing it, especially in the Midwest. A lot of other cities looking at the way Oklahoma City does it. It's not just about new parks and a cute little streetcar. I mean, this is also millions of dollars that go to millionaires and billionaires who own sports stadiums and own uh, large private parks. I mean, this isn't just this isn't like new streets and bike lanes. I mean, this this is also a wealth transfer, and to deny that is 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 ignoring the facts. And it's funny because. Only recently, there was like a loophole that allowed the donors who supported the, you know, the vote yes on maps, um, they were able to keep the donors sealed. It wasn't public information. And and David Holt, the mayor, was part of who spearheaded that effort to keep the donors hidden. Anyway, um, so I, I think, you know, whether you're talking about airlines and airport security even – or if you're talking about a six-figure foundation in a small Midwest city, I mean, across the board, private funds are superior to public funds because there's true 
accountability. And I know a lot of people think, oh, well, there's accountability with public funds. There isn't. There is no accountability. So I will, I'll go ahead and stop talking about it now. Aaron, you talk. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, So basically I have prepared, I have prepared more than last week. I will tell you that there's just so much news. My problem is there's so much news going on right now. It's hard to focus on one thing, but I saw this video um, from, I saw this video from reason today, this morning. And uh, last week we talked about, or at least I mentioned that regulations, you know, regulations I couldn't name that set back, you know, progress in this whole crisis. And so Reason put out a handy dandy list of 10 public safety regulations set aside in the name of public safety. Uh, it's a really funny video. If, if, uh, if you have some time, you should go look it up. Produced by Austin Bragg. Um, so basically the, the number one, the big one is the CDC testing monopoly. So the CDC mandated that it was the only organization that could create and distribute tests. Uh, now when they finally released these tests to the public, it was discovered that the tests were really slow and inaccurate. So after, after that fail, they decided to let private organization organizations make their own tests, uh, delivering faster and more accurate results. Of course, this was, of course, this process probably took about two weeks. So that's that's the big one that really got in the way, is that the CDC was the only organization could create and distribute tests starting out. Now, they loosened this. Oh, yeah. And then right right, right when they loosened it up, what was it? It was Cle- Cleveland Clinic and was it Mayo Clinic? They, like, within, like, a week developed their own tests. <laughs> Well, yeah, and that's why the numbers are are coming. That's one of the reasons why the numbers are coming out so quick now is just because they're finally catching up with how many actual cases there are. Yeah. So that's the big one. Uh, Number two is on March 18th, the White House announced that HHS would allow healthcare providers to work across state lines. The virus had already been confirmed in the U.S. since late January, so took two months for them to do that one. Ridiculous. It's it's. It's insane the the response here, um, and and how these these some of these are just now coming into play. Some of these regulations, or I guess some of the the deregulation, is just now coming into play, and it's yeah. not more apparent that these never should have been regulations in the first place. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Um, so number three is the TSA eased restrictions on having more than 3.4 ounces of liquid in a yeah. container. So yes, I saw that. So now you can bring up to 12 full ounces of, if you're so fortunate to have some of that clear gold, which is what we call hand sanitizer. Um, right. But, yeah. But yeah. That's, that's I don't know about other. Everyone other knows that that's bullshit. That that fucking that that limit on li- on the liquid totally arbitrary and everybody knows it <laughs> absolutely um so number four first of all did you know that there was an agency called the alcohol and tobacco tax trade bureau no i don't think i did <laughs> no me either and i'm pretty familiar <laughs> but i i have not heard that one it sounds like an offshoot of the atf almost um, that's exactly what i was thinking <laughs> but um apparently they had restrictions on distilleries which practically barred them from making hand sanitizer uh, which is what yeah. a lot of distilleries wanted to do coming into this i i heard stories yeah. about them like 
starting to do that. That's only because they've slashed permits, bonds, authorization, formula approval, and taxes through June 30th. So if you're a distillery and you're wanting to make your hand sanitizer buck, uh, do it while you can because there's, I mean, unless they extend it, you got till June 30th. Yeah, well, but they should. They should not. They shouldn't just extend it. They should get rid of it entirely. The fact that such restrictions exist is is ridiculous. But I, I noticed that because, like, the day that happened, or like the weekend happened, my one of my favorite vodkas, Tito's, out of Austin, was like, "Hey, we're making hand sanitizer now," <laughs> and they <laughs> And, yeah, they and have- I, I haven't seen this directly from them, but I'm pretty sure Prairie Wolf here in Oklahoma is doing the same. That that Tito's is going to be like a, a, a historical object after this is all over. Like, and oh, the yeah. bottle, the bottle looks just like the vodka. It's so funny. I love that. I want to get it. I mean, I, I just I, just to have it. I, I, yeah, I exactly. It. I just want it. <laughs> Yeah, dude. No, you could you could make a buck off that in the future for sure. Anyway, I'll keep going with this list. Uh, this okay. So number five, uh, state and local governments are lifting bans on alcohol home delivery around the country. And I saw some of this. Yes. I don't know. Are they doing it in Oklahoma? Because I'm I I'm not very in the loop on that. They they are. Um, it's funny because the Oklahoma City Police had tweeted about it, and someone responded like are we able to drink in public now? And <laughs> Coop, Coop Aleworks responded and was like, well, technically if you're in this area under these, under this, in these circumstances, yes. And Oklahoma city police was like, no public, <laughs> public consumption of alcohol is still illegal. <laughs> <laughs> there are no rules. Yeah, no, and there shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if I'm quarantined, I'm when I go outside, I'm a, I'm gonna take a beer with me, and I'm gonna be in the front yard. Damn it! Yeah, seriously, <laughs> is that illegal? I don't know. I Edmund? actually don't know. Uh, I don't know. I've I've just been doing so, it. But I found out. I found out. So my my hometown back in Pennsylvania, outside Pittsburgh, it's still a dry town. Um, it, you can bring a bottle of wine or something to like a restaurant, but restaurants can't sell it or serve it. Um, there is a beer distributor in town, but all of the wine and spirits are in Pennsylvania. They're actually owned and sold by the state. It's, it's literally socialized, um, completely fucked up system in Pennsylvania. But, uh, in our town, I, I just found this out in December when I was home at Christmas, it used to be illegal to even drink wine on your front porch. No way. That's so draconian, dude. It's absurd. And it's absurd that even now you still can't buy alcohol in that town. I think I think it's ridiculous. But um, yeah, your own property on your own front porch, and it was illegal to, to drink wine. I, it's absurd. But anyway, go ahead. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> Number six, the FDA eased restrictions too. So they declared previously unapproved respirators as completely safe now. Uh, they allowed pharmacists to make hand wow. sanitizer. They allowed outside groups to make diagnostic tests. They eased access to antiviral drugs. They allowed the use of devices that remotely measure vital signs and allowed veterinarians to use telemedicine because apparently they weren't allowed to do that before. So that's all things that the FDA did. What a stupid thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Number seven, kind of in the same in the same vein, is Medicare is now paying for telemedicine visits. 
It wasn't already. Wow. Yeah, I don't. I guess not. Okay. And then number number eight, the HHS waived HIPAA rules, declaring that doctors may now use Skype and FaceTime for telemedicine. I think that one wasn't allowed because of privacy or something, but they must have had their own. Yeah, that's, that, I don't know if I like that one. Uh, you know, so there is a there is a service called Doxy that is specifically for like telemedicine. Like it's basically like Skype. But it, you know, it's made with HIPAA in mind. Ah, I don't know if I like that. I mean. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if maybe they they definitely, I'm assuming they had some sort of platform running for for telemedicine already. But maybe it just, they just couldn't take the, all the demand that would be, and all the stress that would be put on it. And so that's why they did yeah. Skype and FaceTime. I guess it just more into depends. That. I mean, I guess with, with Skype, I guess I, I don't feel, I don't feel. I don't feel as bad because Microsoft is generally better with your privacy and your data, certainly way better than Google and Facebook. So if you were ever to use like Facebook portal or like Google hangouts to do it, uh, uh-uh. no, I, I don't think so. I'd rather die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So number nine, uh, states around the country are freeing nonviolent criminals. And I'm, I'm saying criminals with air quotes. Yeah. Um, Big those, air quotes. Those who were jailed for technical violations or simply being unable to afford bail. Um, site and release policies are being put in place acro- across the country in different states to keep low-level offenders out of jail if there is no risk to the community. So basically, they've admitted that they've just been locking up people who pose no threat to the community before now. Yeah, that's that's exactly that, that's funny. In doing that, that, that is exactly what they've admitted. Yeah. These people serve no threat to our community. So we're going to let them go. But if it weren't for that pandemic, they'd be locked up <laughs> and they wouldn't be seeing the light of day anytime soon. Uh, and not only so, so not only should these programs continue past the pandemic, we should also consider getting rid of the ordinances that make whatever they're doing, whatever these people are doing, even violations at all. I mean, sight and release, you know, it's better but should they even be cited for some of this stuff at all? I I don't think so at all. But it's at least a step in the right direction. I agree. I think you should you every individual has a right to their own destruction. I know that sounds kind of harsh, um, but I I really truly believe that. I truly believe that. Yeah. I you know you know if if you told me I I want to go do some cocaine after this podcast, I'd be like, you know, I personally wouldn't do it, but that's your choice. You're not putting it in my body. You're putting it in your body. Look, I, I thought I told you not to tell anybody about that, Aaron. <laughs> you know, I heard it's good for, for fighting the COVID, the, the, the Rona. No, no, no. We're not doing that here. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's as deep as I'll, I'll go in the, into the conspiracy. Theory. That's not that's true, not, people. Okay, don't listen to that. We're no, 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 no. <laughs> oh shoot, we're gonna get yeah, we're gonna get banned or something. That's called a joke. <laughs> that, that, that was that was a joke. <laughs> you know, people are suing Fox News for supposedly uh, communicating like misinformation. They were they were disseminating misinformation about coronavirus. So some people are suing them. So we don't need to get sued because we're telling people to do cocaine. I heard, I heard that story. Yeah. (laughs) And, and there's so many other news outlets too, that were downplaying coronavirus before it, 
like none of us were ready for this, right? Fox like, News was hardly think, Fox News. Yeah, Fox News was hardly alone in it. The Washington yeah. Post, the Daily Beast, even MSNBC, the mayor of New York City, and the the health commissioner in New York City. These were all people, and all these outlets were saying, "Oh, it's no big deal." And that was as recently as March first. March first, yeah, I, I remember it started getting crazy around mid March. Um, every week is crazier, so. Anyway, but I'm going to finish this list. We're already to 10, so this is the last one. So apparently, uh, reusable canvas grocery bags carry a bunch of unwanted microbes. And so now most grocery stores are forcing people to use plastic bags. That's not even a regulation. That's just certain grocery stores. So Wait, they're forcing them to use plastic bags? Well, I haven't heard. Probably they can't force people. The private sector can't force people, but... I was going to say, uh, or are they providing? They're probably like, just providing like, them. Because some places like California, where they charge you to use bags, I wonder if they've like waived those. It's like 10 cents a bag in California. And I think Mon- Montana, I don't, there are several other states that do that. So, oh, and also, I want to, I want to correct something I said last week. I said, uh, I quoted, I quoted Ludwig von, von Mises as saying we are not the government the government is not us that's actually murray rothbard and so that's where yeah, i'm that at everybody better. that's better i get them mixed up i get them mixed up. I, I'm, an, I'm still a newbie i'm still a newbie so <laughs> still a newbie did you see the jobless claims that came out today i didn't i did i did i saw that they came out i didn't see anything specific i just saw that unemployment is unemployment claims are through the roof oh absolutely and a lot of those jobs are not coming back because they're being bailed out by the government. And remember, remember, and this is just kind of a total tangent for me right now. I don't have anything prepared on this, but remember in 2008 when, when all the, all the car companies were like getting, getting ready to get bailouts, they said, Oh, they're, they're too big to fail. Right. And they got the bailouts and now we're looking back and surely all of my liberal friends that are aware of what happened in 2008 are, are very disappointed in those bailouts. But then you see everyone in Congress voting for this giant stimulus bill that is just, as Thomas Massey puts it, done in the name of a virus with $1,200 checks as the cheese in the trap. And I think that's a very good way of putting it. I mean, uh, even uh, do you follow Jimmy Dore on, on Twitter? I do. Jimmy Dore is one of my favorite progressives. Man, he's been going. He's a he's a big Sand- Sanders guy, but he's been going after Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders voted for this too, and Jimmy Dore himself called it one one of the largest wealth transfers in the history of this country, and that really is what it is. And even Bernie Sanders voted for it. Absolutely, and I love that Thomas Massey. Just a shout out to him again. He forced yes people to come and put their name. And face behind it, and actually vote well, for he it. Tried to. <laughs> well, yeah, he tried. I guess he did his best, I, and everyone called him. Everyone threw him under the bus. Yeah, fucking John Kerry. His tweet. He called him an asshole. Like, okay, John Kerry. Like, yeah, we're really gonna take you seriously on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For real. If uh, okay. If you want, I I got I got a funny. A funny. Just a headline from, from uh, what the Onion. It's from the Babylon Bee. They've been putting out some bad news recently. Teachers urge government to reopen schools before students learn to think for themselves. 
<laughs> I saw See, this, we're, and we're all about questioning uh, approved narratives on this program. So yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I think it's relevant. And I don't know if you follow Corey DeAngelis on Twitter. I do. Yes, he's one of my faves. Yeah. He's really good on education. So he posted this uh, this post of a, of a principal. I'll just read it to you. It says. The principal says, folks, I've got about 20 years in education, and I'm a school principal. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is for parents to not attempt to replicate the school environment, daily routine, or curriculum instruction at home. Don't make up worksheets or download a curriculum guide to follow at home. Don't set recess breaks, and don't reconfigure your house to include a classroom area. You are not being asked to homeschool your kids. We're at at day two of a system shutdown. Your kids are probably still digesting the fact that they may not get to see their friends and teachers for the foreseeable future. Not to mention, we are in the middle of a global health crisis. Little Susie is not in any position to learn a new math concept today. Uh, at first, I was like, okay, yeah, don't do not do things like they do in public school. Okay, and then, and then it just fell apart. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I get... Don't teach your kids... <laughs> That's our job. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, let's just evaluate this for a second. It, I mean, what he says, it sounds reasonable, right? This is like something unprecedented that we're living through right now. No one has ever gone through this for hundreds of years. So, so I, I see where he's coming from. But when you when you realize it's a teach, it's a principal who who doesn't have any connection to your kid other than that he or she goes to that school telling the parents of those said children that you should not teach them at all it's no, just kind of no, it's, it's kind of off putting it's it's yeah, like so absolutely. controlling I, I one of my, i think it was another it was another article that was coming uh from the babylon bee but it was um something something uh, something along the lines of parents trying to reconcile the fact that they now have to take care of their kids themselves. That, that was fucking hilarious. And like, and I, and I get like working parents. I, I, I obviously the Babylon B is coming from a, a more like uh, conservative Christian perspective that, that is going to stress those family family values. And they're going to probably push the narrative that liberals hate family values, which I don't think is inherently true. But I think the point he, that that headline was making was funny nonetheless, and that in in this society uh, we we are leaning heavily on on government education and government mandating of of morals and ethics that are taught in public schools to the point where way too many families are completely abandoning it at home, and it's because of people like that principal who is pushing that no, you shouldn't teach your kid because that's our job. Well, there are so many people who would argue that it shouldn't be your job. It is the job of the parents. It should be the job of the parents. In any case, you want to talk about shared responsibility. It's completely asinine for him to say that. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. It's, it's like, I mean, during, during the great depression, I I don't think there were public school teachers going around saying that, but I don't know. I mean, maybe when you, uh, that's, that's your homework until next week. Go ahead and try and find, (laughs) I mean, I mean, what I'm trying to say is it just seems like in World War II, people were asked 
to sacrifice quite a bit. People aren't being asked to sacrifice much at all this time around. And we, I mean, we know that we're in a recession, possibly going into a depression. I'm still rambling. Yes. <laughs> no, I, okay. Oh God, we, we should stop now. Cause I, 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 no, I really want to get into this because I think it's, it's interesting because so many of it, so many, so much of the narrative right now is focused on individual responsibility. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, as libertarians, we're supposed to be all about individual responsibility, which I think politically it is. Yeah. Political and political individuality is very important. But when it comes to something like a pandemic, like a plague, me staying home, I'm sorry, that's not enough. I can take on the personal responsibility of staying home to prevent the spread, but there's still tens of thousands of people just in this city just today that have gone out to do stuff. And it seems like even in the midst of this, this this trope of individual responsibility is still being pushed. And it's almost, especially on social media, it's like this new this new wave of wokeness to, to encourage people to stay home is part of what it means to be woke. Now to talk about everything you're doing in quarantine is woke to do. And oddly enough, you know, we, we are going to pull a lot of, of ideas on this podcast. And I want to just borrow an idea from a Slovenian philosopher, Slyov Zizak. He is a, uh, Marxist, so Whoa. we probably have much to disagree with about. But he he recently talked about this that right now the trope is still being put about on individual responsibility, and no one's talking, or not enough people are talking about and living out the communal responsibility we have to be taking care of each other. And I know that sounds like oh, it sounds like socialism, but like it's true. We as as private individuals could be doing more in our community. But that's not is you know you can go ahead and tweet that so you can get your likes and your retweets. But like that's that's still at the end of the day, so much of that is still just pushing the narrative of individual responsibility. And he he recently, he, okay, I'll stop. But like that, I mean, that kind of I think goes with what you're saying. Like we're we're not the the only sacrifice so many of us are being asked to make is to stay home and to do that for so many people is enough to do that to to tweet several times a week that we should all stay home is enough to get you labeled as someone who is good-natured and woke meanwhile the communal responsibility that we have the sacrifices we should be making none of us are making it because we don't need to we can get the social currency of our time i.e you know likes and retweets just by sitting at home doing nothing yeah yeah and we could go on about that forever but we're almost at the one hour mark but I never got no, into my uh, my next door exploits. Speaking of neighbors and communities. Oh, God. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We can cut this out if it's not good enough for you, Dylan. But I saw... Wait, okay. I saw you tweeted something from the podcast that was about the census. I didn't read it yet. Is it positive or negative? I know it was from NPR, cause, so it's probably positive. It's it's both. It kind of tells both both sides it's a it's a podcast episode from uh code switch okay well i so one of my favorite activities is to troll around on next door and just make comments that no one is going to like so <laughs> you are such I've a already, bastard <laughs> i've already been suspended once i'm not even mean i just say things in a very straightforward manner and people don't like it so on this one post, someone 
someone uh, posted it's census day everyone complete your census yes i just wrote uh did you know that in world war ii the census bureau used their data on japanese americans in order to intern them in camps yeah and so everyone's calling trump a fascist so why why that's exactly <laughs> why such right. a big push for a census like why does it matter like we're in an epidemic are they really is it really right. that important right now like they're saying it's so important i just don't i just don't buy it no and that they kind of they actually get into a little bit of that on the npr podcast i tweeted out and they brought up that information that has been used in the past for horrible purposes including oh, good. i'm glad they tournament. i'm glad they're honest about it i don't i don't listen to npr that much but. It's a really great episode. Everyone should, should listen to it. It's only like 38 minutes, so everyone should check that out. Code Switch on NPR. It's the latest episode. just came out yesterday. On uh, the, Yesterday was Census Day, so it came out yesterday. Okay, I'm going to do it. Okay, well, that's the, we'll, we'll go ahead and finally call it quits uh, this week. Next week, remember, we are going to be reviewing all seven episodes, I think it's seven, of Tiger King. On Netflix, uh, Joe Exotic, a f- I don't, I, oh God, I can't call him a fellow libertarian, but he's a libertarian originally from here in Oklahoma. Um, uh, Aaron's met him, um, and uh, we're going to review that. Remember, follow us on Twitter at pod. Email us, pod at gmail.com. Ideas, feedback whatever you want. And also something I need to start remembering to plug. If you like our podcast, please review us, especially on Apple Podcasts, because that's how other people can find us. So if you get on there and review us, it would really help us a lot. And I just like to say, if you don't like our podcast or even the idea of us having a podcast, feel free to bitch about us on Twitter because we'll need a few of those this week. I'm expecting a few of us. Yeah, go ahead. Find us on Twitter. Email us. Tell us. Tell us. Go ahead. All right. That is our show for this week. We will. We'll see you next week when we talk about Tiger King. I can't wait. Sapere Ade is a production from Gaudium for fun for future. Hosted by me, Aaron Johnson, and me, Dylan Shu. See you again next time.